Would you open God's Word this morning to the book of 1 Samuel? We'll be reading from chapter 1, verse 1, to the end of the chapter, verse 28. The page in the Pew Bibles may be found on page number 225. Last week, we gave an overview message of the entire book of 1 Samuel, and this morning, we are plunging our way into this book uh, by looking at the very first chapter of it. 1 Samuel, chapter 1, uh, verse 1. Uh, through 28. Here is God's word for us this morning. There was a certain man of Ramathaim, Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept. And would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant you your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. 
Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for, he said, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her along with a three-year bowl, uh, an ephah of flour and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord had granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord, and he worshipped the Lord there. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for our hearts. Would you pray with me? Asking God to bless the preaching of his word. Father in heaven, you are a God who is worthy to be sought as our only refuge. Father, we pray that as we hear your word this morning, our hearts may be revived, our hearts may be strengthened, our hearts may be encouraged to look nowhere else for comfort or refuge but to you. We pray that you would establish your word this morning in our hearts, that our hearts may trust you. In the name of Christ, we pray for his glory and honor. Amen. Amen. Friends, the book of Samuel tells a story of the shift from the chaos of self-rule to the king after God's own heart. In this book, we see the transition from the period of the judges uh, to a period in which everyone did what was right in their own uh, eyes to the time when God brought a God-given king over the nation who would rule over Israel according to God's own heart. But this story that that is really interested to, to speak about a national change, a national restoration... This story starts not with some political situation, not with some political strategy, but with the story of one family who experienced barrenness and significant interpersonal hurt. Hopelessness and interpersonal strife at the family level. This is a starting point of the book of 1 Samuel. Hannah's story is a beautiful story because of the God to whom she runs for refuge. Because of the events in chapter 1, 
uh, that, la- that, that, that will lead Anna to, to get to utter one of the most beautiful prayers in the entire Old Testament, which is written for us in chapter 2, which we have not read. We'll, we'll look at next week, Lord willing. But we will, we will look at the prayer of Hannah next week. But, but if we take a quick peek at chapter 2, we realize that in the prayer that Hannah utters in chapter 2, she's speaking not only about what God is doing in her family, but what God is going to be doing for all his people. So Anna's prayer in chapter 2 tells us, gives us a hint that what is happening to Hannah in chapter 1 is not only for herself, but is perhaps a foreshadowing, an an anticipation of what God wants to do for all His people, for all those who belong to Him. So think about it. The book of the Bible that tells the story of the transition from the judges to the kings starts with a conflict and the human helplessness of a barren wife. But what Hannah does in chapter 1 is the kind of anticipation and the kind of pattern that she is she's encouraging us to consider to do before the Lord in our helpless situation as well. What makes Hannah's story such an appropriate starting point for the book of First Samuel is a step Hannah takes in turning to God for refuge. So the question the sermon this morning poses to each and every one of us is, where do you turn for refuge? Where do you turn for refuge? Let's consider Hannah's story. And we can divide her story in three major sections. In chapter 1, Hannah's affliction, Hannah's response, and Hannah's selfless devotion. Hannah's affliction, Hannah's response, and Hannah's selfless devotion. I pray that as we consider these three parts, three movements in in Hannah's distress, that we, would be con- that we would be encouraged by God's Word to answer the question, where do we turn for refuge? And respond, just like Hannah did, turn to the Lord. Let's look at Hannah's affliction. We see this in verses 1 through 8. Our text starts by describing, describing the setting of the story. It takes place in the hill country of Ephraim. Have you heard the phrase, the hill country of Ephraim? In the last five weeks here at Park Hills, as Pastor Taylor was finishing off the the book of Judges, the last five chapters of the book of Judges present two gruesome stories of corruption in worship and corruption in morality. The story of Micah and the story of the Levite and his concubine. Both of those stories in the book of Judges happened in the hill country of Ephraim. In contrast to those two stories of judges, Elkanah is presented as a devout Jew who is going yearly to Shiloh to worship God, to bring sacrifices there and to fulfill his vows to the Lord. In in the story, we, we see a contrast between what happened in the book of Judges and what happened in this family's life. Elkanah had two wives. Now, polygamy was never encouraged in the scripture, yet in the Old Testament it was tolerated. But even in the Old Testament, whenever we see it show up in the Old Testament, it always caused trouble. 
in the home. And that is exactly what we see in Elkanah's home. In verse 2, we find out that Penina uh, had children, but Anna did not. Uh, she was barren. And it is Hannah's barrenness that becomes the starting point of the book of 1 Samuel. Hannah's barrenness was hard enough of an affliction. Struggling with infertility is a particular soul-wrenching experience and struggle. And there are some in our own congregation who have battled some form of that. But what was even more struggling in Hannah's a situation is that this happened in ancient times when once security in old age was seen in one's children. And the issue of barrenness shows up a few times in the biblical storyline. Remember Abraham's wife, Sarah? She was barren. God had promised Abraham that God would make Abraham into a great nation. So it's amazing that God's promise to make a family, one family, into a great nation came to a family that struggled with infertility. It was a way by which God showed Abraham that in order for the promise to become a reality, God had to work out a miraculous intervention in Sarah's womb. The promise to Abraham could not be fulfilled by merely Abraham and Sarah's powers. Barrenness also played a key role in bringing about the last judge in the book of Judges. Remember Samson? He was the last judge in the story of the book of Judges. And Samson's mother and her husband Manoah, uh, they were barren before the angel of the Lord showed up to Manoah's wife and announced to them that, that they will be with child. In other words, the last judge God raised up in the story of Judges, in the book of Judges, came from a barren woman. And now, the transition from Judges to kingship continues and develops uh, as the story begins with another barren wife. Hannah's barrenness caused significant family conflict between her and Penina. Barrenness is is enough of a struggle in and of itself for any wife to go through, even when a family is surrounded by great love and support and sympathy. But Hannah's barrenness did not have any of those perks. Hannah's barrenness was intensified by the conflict provoked by Penina. Look at verse 6 and 7. We read that her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her. Because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. Notice how the Bible describes Penina in this context. As her rival. How was Penina a rival for Hannah? Through her words. Words alone were enough to cause a rivalry between these two women. Friends, some of the hardest conflicts are those with family members 
when words are being used that cause us grief, grief, deep grief, it makes one feel that the other is a rival. Have you ever experienced that? Estrange relationships? Panina knew how to push the right buttons through her words. What to say that would provoke Hannah and cause her great grief and irritation. Again, it's hard enough to be barren. It's worse not to have the support of your family. It's even worse when a family member becomes a, a rival and intentionally provokes you and causes you constant irritation. Friends, we as human beings have a natural inclination to say things to others in ways that hurt them. I'll just bring you into my family home for a second. Every week, we find ourselves, Anka and I find ourselves needing to correct our children for the way they are responding to their siblings, to each other, in ways that are hurtful or just plain out mean and destructive to each other. And we as parents find ourselves needing to correct them, needing to call out, needing to be like referees, to call out and say, hey, you can't say it that way. You can't be mean to your brother and sister that way. But sadly, those inclinations that we observe easily in our children, they also are with us as adults. We somehow don't grow out of those inclinations, dear friends. And I wonder if you have anyone in your life that fits this category of panina, someone who has caused you great grief or continues to cause you great grief in the present. Or perhaps you might be a panina for someone else. Perhaps even without realizing, you might be causing others' griefs and sorrows through your words or through your actions. May God protect us from developing Panina's attitude as we relate to one another. But notice that Hannah's irritation was caused at a particular time of the year. It was caused during the annual family worship trip. Notice when it was that Panina would act this way in verse 7. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Think about the irony. Think about the, the, the timeliness of this event, if you will. Ironically speaking, timeliness. It was during the special time devoted to the worship of the Lord that Penina found it timely to speak to Hannah in a provoking way. Instead of focusing on the Lord, instead of focusing on worshiping God, She's not missing a chance to provoke Hannah. And she would do it not once, not twice, but year after year. This is what verse 7 says. So it went on year by year. But what occasion was this irritation caused on? It was during the annual family worship trip to Shiloh. In other words, their annual family worship trip became corrupted because Penina was using the occasion to provoke Hannah. How sad that what was supposed to be an occasion of worship for the entire family turned out to be a venue for causing irritation and provoking of others. 
instead of there being joyful gratitude and worship of God, Penina managed to provoke Hannah and spoil not only Penina's worship of God, but Hannah's worship as well. Friends, may God protect us from seeing among us or in our own hearts the spirit of Penina. May the spirit of Penina be shunned away from this gathering of believers. That we would somehow be tempted, even unintentionally, to gather to worship God together. And instead of focusing on, on worshiping the Lord, we're focusing on, on what the other has or doesn't have. And say things that are hurtful, even when we don't intend it. May the Lord pr protect this congregation from the spirit of Penina. But notice, Elkanah was not a big help here either. Elkanah was a loving husband, but he too responded poorly to this crisis. Elkanah not only failed to correct Panina, but he also failed to sympathize with Hannah's pain. Notice Elkanah's words in verse 8. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? By the way, these are good leading questions to try to have a conversation, to try to understand what was going on in Hannah's heart. And if, if Elkanah stopped at those questions, it would have been so good, but he doesn't. He goes on and asks another question, and this question spoils every good intention that, ha that Elkanah has. He says to Hannah, am I not more to you than ten sons? Elkanah's solution seems to imply that his love of a husband was a sufficient refuge for Hannah's deep distress. How wrong of Elkanah to, to make himself such a refuge. To suggest to Hannah that if she could just grasp his, his full love for her, that that would be sufficient to deal with, with Hannah's distress. Elkanah was was well-intended, but he, he, re, he did not realize that he is not an adequate refuge for Hannah's affliction. He was not able to understand Hannah's deep hurt. Hannah's affliction deepens as she realizes that even her loving husband and well-intended husband can't rescue her from her deep affliction. She can't even, he can't even understand her deep affliction well enough. So where should Hannah run for refuge if even her loving husband cannot be the refuge that he initiates and offers to be for her? Look at Hannah's response. Look at Hannah's response. We see her response in verses 9 through 18. Hannah's response can be, can be broken down in, in a few steps, in a few stages. The first thing she did, in verse 9, we are told that Hannah went to the house of God. Verse 9, after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now, since the rest of the verse, verse 9, tells us about Eli standing at the doorpost of the temple of the Lord, it's clear that Hannah went to the temple of the Lord. And notice what she did there in verse 10. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. Hannah took her deep distress and bitter crying. She went with that to the temple of the Lord. Sometimes 
people feel so distressed that it keeps them away from coming to the place of public worship. Not Hannah. She is not afraid to bring her deep distress and bitter weeping to the house of God. That means, dear friends, that we as a church should seek to be an open place for people to bring up their hurts and distresses. If we create the peer pressure that as Christians, all we should have is joy, it makes it a lot more difficult for people who are in distress to come to church with their distress. That also means that we need to affirm each other that it is okay to be open with one another about our distress and afflictions. That also means that if we ask one another, how are you doing? And the answer is, I'm not doing well. That we wouldn't just run away. That we would sit there and take time to ask, well, tell me why is it that you're not doing well? What's going on in your heart, in life? What's distressing you? Also, this is why in in our public gathering of, of worship, we choose songs that intentionally choose to, to have a variety of emotions. Not just happy and triumphalistic songs. We want to have songs that distressed and afflicted Christians can sing when they come together to worship. That's why we introduced to our congregation this morning the song, Afflicted Saint. Friend, do you have the faith and courage to bring your distress to the public worship of God? Are we a congregation that are, that are open to be sympathetic to those who are in distress? If we are distressed, then we come to worship here. When we come to worship, we should have no pretense that everything is fine. When on the inside, we are hurting and in deep distress. We want to be a, a place that people can come to with their distress to the Lord. But notice that Hannah, as she went to the Lord, to the temple of the Lord, she brought her affliction to the Lord in prayer. Notice Hannah's actual prayer in verse 11. O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant. Hannah is open to talk to the Lord about her affliction. And she asked the Lord to look upon her affliction. Friends, what does it mean? For us to bring our affliction to the Lord. And to ask the Lord to look upon our affliction. Notice what it meant for Hannah. When she was misunderstood by the priest Eli. She said the following words in verse 15. No my Lord. I am a woman. Of tr- I, am a, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink. But I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. What does it mean to bring your affliction to the Lord in prayer? It means telling the Lord your pain. Telling Him your hurt. Recognizing that you are troubled in spirit. It means acknowledging the troubles of your spirit. Hannah's description is very vivid. Pouring your soul before the Lord. In prayer. In addition, Anna gives Eli this explanation in verse 16. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. 
The word for vexation can also be translated as indignation or grief or even anger in the sense of a holy anger. You see how Hannah is conscious of her emotions. And she prays those emotions out. She pours out her soul to the Lord in prayer. Friends, when we go to great, through great anxiety or indignation, do we speak to the Lord those emotions? Do we bring those emotions to the Lord in prayer? Or do we somehow allow our emotions to keep us away from the Lord? It's so easy. When we feel sad, when we feel down, when we feel distraught, it's so easy to allow that sadness to create a gap between us and the Lord, between us and the temple of the Lord, between us and the people of the Lord. But not for Hannah. Hannah chose to speak to the Lord out of her great anxiety and vexation. Even when that anxiety and vexation, even when that prayer was misassessed by the priest, by Eli. I know there are some ladies in this church who meet together to pray, to pour out their soul to the Lord in prayer. And in their time of prayer, I hear that they run through a box of Kleenex. I'm not suggesting that the mere presence of tears makes us more spiritual, but it's entirely appropriate to pour our soul to God in prayer and weep before the Lord and bring our emotions before the Lord. Oh, friends, I want to encourage you to do what Hannah did. Some of us are more concerned with our self-image and dread the idea that others would see us weeping. Hannah wept bitterly at the temple of the Lord to the point that she gave Eli the wrong picture, that she was a drunken woman. That's how, that's how affected, that's how emotional she was in praying to the Lord. But that did not keep Hannah away from praying openly and weeping before God. Friends, if we care more about our self-image before others, enough that it would keep us from praying openly or even weeping before the Lord, it could be that we might take more refuge in our self-image than in the God who wants us to run to Him in our most vulnerable moments. We see Hannah going to the Lord, going to the temple, and bringing her affliction to the Lord in prayer. But notice something else about Hannah's response. Not only did she go to the temple, not only did she go to the Lord in prayer with her affliction, but Hannah prayed. Hannah's prayer was not self-centered. Hannah's prayer was not self-centered. Notice what she's asking the Lord to do and what she's pledging to do back to the Lord. In verse 11, And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. Hannah is asking a bold prayer from God to give her a male child. But in that very same prayer, Hannah is promising God to give back to the Lord what he would give her. 
Imagine being my mom, a barren mother, asking for a child, and at the same time making the commitment, the vow to the Lord that this child is not going to be yours to keep. Hannah's prayer was not fueled by self-centeredness, but by a selflessness that is radical. She's asking for a child, not for her to keep, but for the Lord to have. In the vow that Hannah makes, the description that no razor shall touch his head was a clue that Hannah vowed to offer this child to be a Nazarite so that his entire life would be lit for the sake of the Lord. Friends, Hannah asks of the Lord, but not with selfish motivations. She's praying in a radically selfless way. In the book of James, chapter 4, the apostle James speaks to believers who ask of the Lord. Well, first he tells them, you do not have because you do not ask. Well, then he goes on and says, you ask and you do not have or do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. It is entirely possible that we can be selfishly wanting God to work so that we can use his answer in our self-centered ways. And James says that God does not answer such prayers. Hannah is an example of a woman who is bold in asking from God for a child, even though she's barren, yet in her asking, she is showing one of the highest degrees of self-denial in the entire Bible. Remember, God asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac the promised child of a barren wife. Here's Hannah offering the child that she hopes to receive from the Lord as a barren wife. And she, at her own initiative, is bringing her child and devotes him to the Lord, to, be, to belong to the Lord. Hannah is an example of a woman who is asking of the Lord in the most selfless way. Friends, consider how often your prayers are characterized by more self-centered desires or whether or not they are more characterized by self-denial. Consider the way you pray. Now, it's not wrong to ask of the Lord for your needs, but consider in what ways are you putting the Lord above your own needs even in praying for your needs. If you ask the Lord to help you to get out of a problem, but your heart deep down desires to live ultimately for yourself, don't be surprised if the Lord is not going to answer the prayer that you ask of Him. Ask the Lord to shift your desires so that your desires would be first and foremost for the Lord and His glory, then and only secondarily for your needs. And notice a fourth step in Hannah's response. Hannah not only went to the Lord's house. Hannah not only brought her afflictions to the Lord, she not only prayed in a, in a selfless way, but Hannah's prayer changed Hannah. After Hannah clarifies for Eli that she is not drunk, but that she has been pouring out her soul in peer, prayer to God, the priest Eli sends her off with a blessing. He says in verse 17, Go in peace and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. That day, both Eli and Hannah understood a valuable lesson. 
they both believed that whatever Hannah asked of the Lord, God can be trusted with that petition and therefore to be relied on fully. How do we know that Hannah believed what she prayed and asked God for? How do we know that? Notice what impact the prayer in the temple had on Anna that day. Verse 18, Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. It's important to notice that Hannah's countenance changed before God answered her prayer. Did Hannah's barrenness change right away? Did Penina change from being a rival? Did Elkanah change in becoming a more sensitive husband? No. None of these change at the time of Hannah's prayer. The one whom God changed was Hannah. Oh, friends, how often we come to God and just expect that God would change our circumstances. But God's first desire is to change us as we bring to Him our burdens. Have you ever considered that in prayer, in communing with God, God desires to change us? This doesn't mean that Hannah's, Hannah did not have her affliction, but, in, but God changed how Hannah responded and reacted to her affliction. Now, oh, if every prayer would have such an effect on us. Friends, often pleading with the Lord in prayer over an issue may take a long season. And there are saints in the Bible who have chosen to plead with God for a long time, and God still did not answer. Remember Paul, Saul who became Paul? He asked of the Lord three times for the Lord to remove the thorn in the flesh, and the Lord said, no, because the Lord's grace was sufficient, was more than adequate in Paul's weakness. In Anna's case, the Lord chooses to answer positively. But it's important for us to realize that Anna was changed before she received the answer from the Lord. And the outcome of Hannah's prayer is not only that prayer changed Hannah's attitude, but that the Lord indeed remembered Hannah and blessed her with a male son. And we see this in verse 19 and 20. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. In giving the name Samuel to her newborn child, Hannah associates his name with this great lesson that Hannah learned and experienced. And the only explainable reason why a barren wife is now with child is because Hannah asked of him from the Lord. Friends, the best response Hannah could have taken in her affliction is to turn to the Lord and seek His help and do so in a selfless way. And when she did, it changed her. And it was the occasion that the Lord used to bring about a great deliverance. But let's look at the last part of this chapter, the third point, Hannah's selfless devotion to the Lord. We have considered Hannah's affliction. We have considered Hannah's response. Let's look now at Hannah's selfless devotion. If the first part of the story, Hannah asked of God for a son and then promised to give her son to the Lord, verses 21 to 28 
tell us how Hannah brought little Samuel to the temple and left him there to be raised in the house of God under the priestly care of Eli. When Hannah and Elkanah bring Samuel to the temple, Hannah reminds Eli a few details about the child. Notice what she says in verse 26 and through 28. She speaks this to Eli. She said, Oh my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. The child Samuel was God's answer to Hannah's prayer. Samuel was a visible reminder that the God to whom Hannah prayed is able to answer prayer. He's able to hear his people's requests. He's able to hear the affliction and the distress of his people. He's a God able to grant us what we ask of the Lord, assuming that our request is not selfish or not self-centered. Hannah not only points out that Samuel is God's answer to her prayer, but now she does what she vowed for. She now gives Samuel back to God, just as she vowed in her prayer. When Samuel was weaned off, Hannah fulfilled her vow and brought the young boy to the temple. Now, the age of being weaned off is about the age of three. Hannah brought her three-year-old boy to the temple to be raised at a temple. She would only get to see Samuel from this point on once a year. Imagine, imagine the heart of a mother to give her first child without knowing whether or not she'll have any more children. That she could not see him when he celebrates his birthdays. That she could not see him as he grows week by week, month by month. Hannah is bringing her firstborn child and gives her him to the Lord. If we looked at Hannah's heart only through the human eye, we could feel the internal struggle of a mother's heart of leaving her only son at that time and devoting him to the Lord. Friends, it's easy for us to boast in God when God answers our prayers. It's easy to find God exceedingly adorable when He answers our prayers. Do we also find Him adorable and worthy to give back to Him what He has given to us? Is He worth giving that much back? Is He worth giving to Him generously? Oh, friends, Hannah's affliction leads her to turn to the Lord as her refuge. And when God answers a prayer, it leads her to give to the Lord what she has most precious. Ask yourself, are you tempted to keep God's gifts only for yourself? Are, you, are there ways in which you receive what God gives you and seek to use it only for your purposes? This story started, this story for Samuel, started with a barren woman provoked and deeply wounded during her annual family worship trip. And this story ends with one of the greatest acts of giving back to God, seeing a barren woman give her only son at that time back to the Lord is an act of selfless devotion to the Lord. Friends, that's how the book of 1 Samuel starts. Hannah 
trusted God as her refuge in her affliction and barrenness. And the barrenness that she experienced did not stop God to act His purposes in Hannah's life. Friends, the motif of a barren woman will be used later by the prophet Isaiah to describe the people of God when they are afflicted and utterly hopeless. You can see that in Isaiah 54 verse 1. A barren woman would also play an important part in confirming the birth of Jesus. As Elizabeth, the mother of John, would play a key role in bringing about the anticipation, the the confirmation that Jesus is coming. The Apostle Paul will refer to a barren woman who will have children to describe the Jerusalem above as opposed to the Jerusalem below. And he does that in the book of Galatians chapter 4, verse 27. So we see that the motif of, of barren women was used elsewhere in Scripture to be a description of the people of God. They had become barren with no hope of offspring. It is to such a people that God promises to show up. If only they would look to Him and place their trust in Him, their restoration was not going to be dependent on their abilities or power, but on a God who can make a barren woman become fruitful. I love how Dale Davis, one of the commentators, said, God's tendency is to make our total inability His starting point. Our hopelessness and our helplessness are no barrier to His work. Indeed, our utter incapacity is often the prop He delights to use for His next act. Friends, God's salvation is sent to us exactly when we feel most unable and most helpless. God loves to bring His restoration to those who feel to be at the end of their ropes with no legitimate turn to do except God. Friends, Hannah's story will lead to Hannah's prayer in chapter 2, which will be the pattern that Mary will pray when she will have heard the announcement that God is sending Jesus. Hannah is the barren woman who is playing a key role in the storyline of God's redemptive story to bring about Christ. Friend, if you're not a Christian, Hannah's acknowledgement of her helplessness and hopelessness in her own power is exactly what God desires to see in us. He loves to save those who come to the end of themselves so that they put their entire trust and hope in nothing else but God. God gave us His only Son, so that through Jesus Christ, God worked a great reversal and restoration from the barrenness of of lifelessness and sin and bondage to a new life with God. The restoration that God promised comes through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, so that all those who put their hope in Christ, all those who ask God for refuge, for help, for salvation, will receive God's reversal and God's restoration. Hannah is a picture of what the entire people of Israel were like at the time. Hannah is the kind of model of what God desires for her people to respond like, that they would turn to the Lord in refuge. I wonder, where do you turn for your refuge? Let's pray. Father, you give us in your word stories like Hannah's 
to remind us of the depth of our affliction and hopelessness and helplessness. And you remind us that even the people of God, even our own families, can sometimes be the sore spot of our afflictions. You remind us that there are circumstances in our lives that we cannot change. But you, O Lord, are a God worthy to be sought. You are worthy to be trusted. You are the only refuge that we can have. And to you, O Lord, we want to turn. Forgive us when we fail to turn to you in prayer. Forgive us when we fail to turn our, our sadness, our afflictions, our sorrows, and our griefs to you. Forgive us when the griefs we experience cause a barrier between you and us. Lord, teach us, teach us to do what Hannah did, to turn to you in prayer, in selfless prayer. We pray that you would work a great and mighty restoration in each and every one of our hearts. For the glory of your great name, in the name of Christ we pray.